Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and this particular Gospel has an emphasis on Christ as the servant of the Lord. It was written more toward um, uh, an audience, a Roman audience. As I was studying this week, one thing that I really noticed, and it stood out to me, was the use of the word understand in the book. And, and it's not used a ton of times, but it's used the same way nearly every time. It's used about 11 times in the book. And this is how it's typically used. And I'm just going to go through some verses. You don't have to try and track along with me. Mark 4.12, and, and Jesus is saying, and, and so, that, um, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Mark 4.13, he says, do you not understand this parable? Mark seven fourteen, he says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Mark seven eighteen, he says, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man comes out, um, whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Mark eight seventeen, he says, do you not see or understand? Mark eight twenty one, do you not understand? Mark nine thirty two, but they did not understand. <laughs> Mark twelve twenty four, and is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Mark twelve thirty three, and to love him with all our heart and with all our mind and with all understanding. There's a positive one. We got one positive one out of the group there, right there. You know, so. If you were just to look at those words and how they're used in the Scripture, what would you say is happening in that, just in the use of that word or in this gospel? Talk to me. They weren't getting it. All right, good. Anybody else? Well, catch the, another word that's used in this book a lot, teach. Mark one twenty one. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Mark one twenty two, and they were amazed at his teaching. Mark six two, and he began to teach in the synagogue. Synagogue. Mark six six, and he began to teach them many things. And so, um, here is this. And, and then in, in, in four ten, he goes. They, 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 there was discussions that happened among them, and they began to ask questions. So he was teaching them. This thing is happening here. And then also, you're going to find several times where it says, "And Christ." pulled them aside, and began to teach the, the disciples. In this book, in my mind, you see a little bit more of the realness, the personality of the disciples and the relationship between them and the Lord. Maybe I just noticed it in this gospel. Maybe it is in the others. But right now I can only speak to the gospel of Mark. It's interesting when you go to 8.14 there, there's this story where where. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herod. And they began to discuss with them another, one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus said, Why do you discuss this fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you, do you have a hardened heart? And then don't you, do you kind of see this, this scenario of these guys in a boat and Jesus is teaching, and the one says, we don't have any bread. And the one goes, we don't have any bread. Who forgot the bread? And that pastor says, they've begun to discuss among themselves they don't have bread. And it's like a bunch of teenagers like going, we're going to get caught. No, it's not. It's your fault. Did you do this? Did you take care of this? I just envision these guys whispering among themselves, talking among themselves, someone forgot the bread. And Jesus begins to teach into that moment. You begin to see this personalities there. 
but it continues to unfold as we go into our passage where we're headed here. Well, matter of fact, there's in chapter eight thirty in chapter eight twenty seven, you know, all this teaching, all this do you understand? Now all of a sudden there's a pop quiz. 827, and Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say I am? Now, Peter passes the quiz, but he messes up with the follow-up and loses all the bonus points. Because you come down here into 31, and Peter says in 29, You are the Christ. And then in 31, it says, Jesus says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and, he, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise up. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and lost all the bonus points. Because in verse 33 it says, And by turning around and seeing his disciples, Christ rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Turn over now as we follow this theme, as we follow these things into chapter 9, verse 31. What has just happened here is you see, this is, this is the first of three times that Jesus teaches about his arrest and his death. That time in 8 there, and then another time in 931, and then another time in 1033. In 932, right here, just stay there with me, and we're jumping all around, I know that, but stay with me. I, th- I enjoyed the study of this, And some of this, you might go, where are we going with this? I don't know. I really liked it. I thought you would too, but we're going to get there, all right? And in 32, 932, he says, but they did not understand. He just says to them in 31, the Son of Man has to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again in three days. And they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask. I want you to know what just happened before this. We won't read the passage, but what just happened before this is in, in 914 or 917 through 29, there's been an episode of a woman bringing a child with a demon. And they couldn't cast the demon out. So here's been this little episode of all of a sudden they found themselves to be powerless. And then the very next thing they're talking about in, in verse 34 is they kept quiet because they've been discussing which of them had been the greatest. Does anyone find that odd? Even humorous? They just had this episode, this incident of having someone come to them with a demon and they had all tried to cast it out and couldn't do it. And then they're sitting around saying, so which of us are the greatest? (laughs) They had just been able to not do anything. They'd just proven that none of them could do what their mission was. And yet they're talking about which of us are the greatest, which one of us are the best. And you have to say, based on what? Because you just had this episode of immense powerlessness. You just had this episode of like total impotence. And now you're talking about which of us are the best? This isn't the only time they do it. John 10, 32. On the road to Jerusalem. John 10, 32. Let me read this passage for us. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Uh, just stay along with me and we'll end up, all of us will end up in verse 42, reg- verse 45, regardless of what you're reading from. Verse 32. 
And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And there were those who were following were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. You need to understand that the very next thing that happens in chapter 11 is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, so to speak. Jesus is, is on the road leading up to Jerusalem. The next thing that's going to happen is they're going to welcome him in, celebrate him in because they do not understand Then there's going to be the upper room discourse. There's going to be the time in the garden. Then there's going to be the arrest and the trial, the beating, and ultimately the death. This is where they're headed. This is the path they're on. And Jesus takes them, and it begins on the way, and he pauses in this journey. He says this in verse 33. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying to him, Teacher, we want to ask a favor. And he says, well, what's on your mind, guys? Verse 36, verse 37. Give us, they say to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Can you imagine, and some of you who are working through health issues right now might understand this. Can you imagine if you had just received your diagnosis? You had just received word, terrible news, the death of a family member or something of that nature. And you come to the 12 people you spent the most time with over the past three years, and you sit down and you say, I have some news to share with you, Jack. And you say, in three days from now, I'm not going to die. And then Jack responds, did you see the ball game last night? Not only that, Jack says, can I borrow your car when you're gone? That's what just happened. Jesus, the one that they've dedicated their life to for three years, been walking with him step for step for three years. They've been walking with him, and he has just said one more time, but this time with much more detail than he said any time at all up to this point. He said, I am about to die. And they said, after that happens, can, can me and my brother have the seats next to you, please? And he says, guys, guys, can you sustain the suffering that I'm about to sustain? And they say, oh, matter of fact, yeah, absolutely. We can, we can. And he says, oh, you will, you will. The fact of the matter is, is James, the one brother who just asked to be sitting on one side, he'll be the first disciple to be martyred in Acts. He'll be the first one to suffer what Jesus talks about. John will be the only one who doesn't die by execution. But he's persecuted and sent to exile on the island of Patmos. He suffered as well. So they say to him, well, yes, Lord, we absolutely can. And he goes, well, guys, let me tell you something. You will. 
you will. But let me just tell you something else. Those two spots you're talking about, they're not mine to give away. They've been prepared for someone else, and my Father is going to give them away. That's what he says. In verse 41, he says, In hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignant with James and John. Now, see, isn't it? I just think it's interesting. You know, um, uh, uh, two chapters ago, they were nudging each other and kind of bickering behind the scenes about who forgot the bread. And then, uh, uh, one, and then one chapter ago, they were all bickering about who's the greatest. And now in this chapter, two of them bulked out in front of the group and asked for prime positions. And the other ten find out and says, what's up with that? I thought we were a team. And so the Lord sits down with them and says, verse 42, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you're a marker upper in your Bible person, note in verse 42 and 44, where it says, whoever wishes, and there's a shall in there, or perhaps there's a must in there. In other words, in both of, in 43 and 44, it says, if you want to be first, you must be a slave. If you want to become great, you must be a servant. Those two things cannot be separated. If you want one, you have to do this. Otherwise, you can't have it. Here in this passage, Jesus begins to unfold again. He's already done this twice in this book. But this time, it's a little bit longer. I, I, maybe not. You can, you'll find that in, in, in 8.34 through 37, there he says to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. And whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake for the gospel, and for the gospel will save it. What will profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And then he had done the same teaching after the Mount of Transfiguration. And now here he is again doing the same teaching again. About those who want to be first shall be last. Those who want to be leaders should be servants. And what he's doing in this is that he is taking what they understand as leadership and he is erasing everything they know to introduce a totally different concept. Totally upside down, wrong side out kind of concept. Because they're used to the way the Romans lead. They're even used to the way their own people lead from the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the heavy handedness. And that authority comes because of the sanctions that come with it. That's why you follow those leaders. Because they're heavy handed and if you don't follow their sanctions, there's punishment. And he's saying to them, authority, leadership comes not because you have authority, but because you serve. And they've never heard this before. And it is as countercultural to them as it is to us. One author has said, Jesus taught that authority is given by those who are led in response to grace and concern for the well-being of others. His service was characterized by the desire to serve and empower others. 
There is no telling how many times in his three-year ministry Jesus might have spoken about this, this backwards form of servant leadership. Jesus is a master teacher. I consider Michael Brees to be one of the best teachers I ever get to sit under. And when you see teachers like that, and when I listen to Andy Stanley or other teachers, and don't get into me, I don't want to talk about their theology or their church models. I'm talking about teachers, communicators. When you listen to other communicators, when we go to the Willow Creek Leadership Conference and we sit there and for two days we listen to great communicators, I'm taking notes about everything they're saying and doing. Bill Hybels uses notes. I love that. I feel very confirmed in that. I'm watching how they communicate. Here is Christ, master teacher. And he took his disciples with him, and they listened, they watched, they learned. And then they arrive in Jerusalem, and they find their way to the upper room. And the master teacher has two more lessons on service and servant leadership. You don't have to go there, or you can if you want to. John 13. John 13. One guy describes Jesus in John 13 as the king of with a towel around his waist. John 13, 2. And during supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot and the son of Simon to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the, that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments and took up a towel and girded himself about. And then he poured water into the basement and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he had girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Isn't that interesting? He's teaching a lesson that he knows they don't understand yet. He's, I don't know what your teachers call it, but he like, he's, pre, he's pre-teaching the test. Is that a term? Can you do that? Is that good? Thanks, son. I appreciate that nod. Thank you. He's pre-teaching the test. That night, the king took the position of the slave and did what only the slave should have done as he washed the feet of the disciples. Verses 13 through 17 of that passage, he says this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another's feet. Remember a disciple? We, just, we were just talking about this two weeks ago. A disciple is not an expert in theology, although most, college, uh, most seminary graduates think that they are truly a disciple because they have theology. Disciples don't have to have titles. They don't have to have a collar. They don't have to have degrees. Disciples don't have to have an office in the church building. They could have all these things but not be a true disciple of Christ because a disciple is someone who is becoming like his master. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is growing into the full stature of Christ. But the teacher wasn't finished with his lessons yet. His final lesson had very few words. Instead, It was a master class demonstration. Where now the king who bore a towel around him has been stripped of even that as he hangs on the cross dying. 
For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Interesting phrase, give your life a ransom for many. We take that only in the terms of taken movies and kidnappings and, and, and buying back someone who's been taken. You know, someone that we love, someone who has value to us. That's who gets held for ransom, and we pay for that because these people have value to us. But that is not the way that it was ever used in the times of Christ. In the time of Christ, ransom or a payment was only made for a slave, a prisoner of war, or a condemned man. And so the king took off his towel. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. You might be familiar with that passage. Flip over with me to Philippians 2. We're going to be here for a moment. Flip over to Philippians 2 with me. So there in Philippians 2, Paul is writing about Jesus. And he says this in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but the interest of others. Have you heard that somewhere before this morning? Have you heard that in the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 10, verse 45? Verse here in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king has become like us in order to ransom us and to redeem us to himself. We, I refer to this, this quote so often because I love it, but Louis Giglio says, when the king dies for his subjects, who does it speak to? Who does it point to? Who does it highlight? The king are the subjects. It highlights the king. It highlights the king who would die for his subjects. Having been found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Crossing, when we talk about equip, sin, and serve as our values for our church, we're pointing to Christ's example in 1 John 3.16, John wrote, this John, this John that we were just reading about here a moment ago, who says, I want to sit on the other side of you. That John says this, 1 John 3.16, says, We know love by this, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. You know, when we talk about equip, sin, and serve, equip and sin are intangibles in many ways. Equip and sin are knowledge-based. It's like being coming equipped. It's what we're learning and all. Sin is being sent. Sin is being in relationship to people around us. We've talked about that a lot in the past two weeks. But here we come into this third part of equip, sin, and serve, and we are in serve. And serve is hands-on. Serve is practical. It's pragmatic. 
It's interactive. It's giving. It's sacrificial. It's living and walking alongside of others. We equip, we equip and are sent to serve. Just like our master. There's service happening around here all the time. I see it. Every Sunday morning you see it. This morning we had people who got up in single-digit temperature to set up chairs, to run the soundboard, to set up the tech, to prepare our refreshments, to lead us in worship. I see greatness. I see service when I see people stacking chairs after church here, when I see them washing dishes back there, when I see them counting the offering. I see greatness in so many people who have dropped off meals here at our church for church family members who have given rides to doctor's appointments, who do ministry at nursing homes every single week, who stock the shelves of the food pantry, who sew costumes for the militia. Do you see it too? You do. And there are examples that you're seeing that are off out of the context that I get to see. But we see service all around us. But more importantly than seeing it, are each and every one of us pursuing it? Pursuing it. If we are to be like our master, he came to serve. That's what he came to do. And if we say we are Christians, what we are saying is that I came, I am, I'm wanting to be like him. But if we are saying we want to be like him and we are not serving in any capacity... I mean, and, not, and it doesn't have to be all about church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about looking for others to meet their needs. Then we are not becoming like him. This morning, I appreciated so much that John did that little quiet moment there. I love it when God orchestrates things without us ever talking. But this morning, we are to celebrate so many who are serving. Our youth staff this weekend, Todd and Debbie Donkey this weekend. So many are serving. Um, this, this little section of the room over here is full of people every single Sunday because there are some who serve every single Saturday afternoon reaching out to people with addictions. And so many lives have been changed because someone serves there. People open up their homes and let people live there for unending amounts of time. Service happens. We should be inspired by that. And we don't have to do the exact thing we see others doing. What we have to do is what we've been talking about. We have to do what's in our path. We have to do that. Whatever we're called to, that's ours to own. That's ours to do. That's what he's planned for us. Being equipped is great. Being in relationship is really good. But when we begin to serve and we take everything we learned and put it into action, we begin to make major steps to becoming like him because that's what he was doing. I'm just praying that that's what we're all seeking to do as well, to realize that it's in relationships, it's in service that we become more like him. All right, let's pray.